I was preparing to bring a different message this morning. I've written a diff- totally different message for this morning. But after Tuesday, we, we did our prayer meeting Tuesday, and we talked about Colossians. And if you, if you were in, pr- in prayer meeting on Tuesday, we had an incredible time of prayer focusing on who Jesus is. And that, that great passage in Colossians, he's the visible image of the invisible God. He's supreme over all creation. We just prayed into situations, praying the name of Jesus over different situations. And, and I'm always open to challenge. And I got really challenged um, in, in a conversation. And as, as I was driving home, I thought, hang on, why am I saving that for Tuesday? Actually, this is something, this is something we all need to look at. This is actually something we all need to, to know. We all need to know who Jesus is. Whether we've been saved for five decades or five minutes, we need to know who is Jesus. So we're going to be looking at this over the next couple of weeks. And, and this is the question, who was this man from Galilee? This, this carpenter that, that basically turned the world upside down. If you look at Jesus' story, he came from the wrong social class. He came from the wrong place. He spoke with the wrong accent. He worked in the wrong profession. He ate with the wrong people, championed the wrong causes, and attracted the wrong kind of followers. But they called him the Messiah. They called him the Christ. His, his, his Hebrew name would be Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus of Joseph. This man from a small village became the greatest teacher the world's ever known. So the question we're going to ask the, over these next two weeks is, who is Jesus? It's not just the Bible that talks about Jesus, by the way. There's a man called Josephus who is a, a Jewish historian, and he's written this book. If I've got one on my shelf. It's about that thick. And he chronicles the entire history of the Jews right from creation up to the times of the Romans. And, and he writes this. He said, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. So even Josephus, this Jewish historian, he, he's questioning, can we call this guy a man? Or was he something more? And he says, he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men that received the truth with, with pleasure. He drew to him both Jews and many Gentiles. He brought everyone to himself. It didn't matter where you were from or, or where you were born or what your life was like. He drew people to himself. And then Josephus just says it. He was the Christ. He was the Christ. That word Christ isn't Jesus' surname, by the way. Actually, the word Christ means the anointed one. And Joseph, Josephus, knew this man was the anointed one of God. He says this, When Pilate condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake them. He appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things. And the tribe of Christians who are named from him, they're not extinct to this day. We can say the same thing. 2,000 years later, Jesus is still alive. He's still a doer of wonderful works. He's still the anointed son of God. He still teaches us truth. He still draws us to himself. And as followers of Jesus, we're not extinct. Can I give you a fact? There are an estimated 600 million Pentecostals in the world today. That's well over a quarter of the world's 2.6 billion Christians. By 2050, that number is expected to reach 1 billion just Pentecostals. One in 10 people on earth will be Pentecostal Christian. 3.3 billion Christians. Whatever the news might want to tell you, whatever the UK census data might feed you, the Church of Jesus is alive and well. 
and it's thriving. But it's really important that we know who Jesus is. And there's a great passage in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is traveling with his disciples and he, and he says to the disciples, he's looking around and says, who do these people say that I am? And they, they come back to him and say, well, some people you'll say you're John the Baptist, which is really odd because John the Baptist was, was already alive and they just met him, but anyway. And, and other people say, some say you're Elijah, and others say you're Jeremiah, and others say you're, you're another one of the prophets. And Jesus kind of carries on walking. And then he turns right around and he says, okay, 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 who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am? Everything boils down to this one question, who is Jesus to us? And what we want to do is, is bring two focuses, messing, uh, messages focusing on who Jesus is. Do you know there's a world that would love to confuse you about who Jesus is? There's a world that would love to confuse you about actually what Jesus said. But we're going to look at what the Bible says about Jesus and, and what he says to us. And Peter's reply is this, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied this, you're blessed, Simon, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from anyone else. You didn't pick this up in a textbook. No one's taught you this. No one's kind of indoctrinated with it. God has given you this, and he gives Simon a name change. And he says, you're going to be called Peter, which means rock. And then he says something, and I just want to kind of help your theology a little bit. He says, on this rock, I'll build my church. Now, he never said, I will build my church on Peter. Peter never led a church, Ever. You look at the history of the, 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 the New Testament, the history of the early church. Peter never led a church. The church was built on the rock of Peter's testimony. That his testimony was Jesus is the Messiah. His testimony was Jesus is the Son of God. And when you read John's gospel, these two phrases are titled, they just go together all the time. John says at the end of his gospel, this is why I wrote my book. So you might continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So by believing in him, you have power, have life by the power of his name. When, when Jesus goes to Lazarus' house in, in Bethany, Lazarus has died, and Jesus gets to the house, and, and before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he says to Mary, do you believe in me? And Mary says this, yes, Lord, I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And so what we want to do over these next two phrases, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at these two phrases. Messiah. And they're not mutually exclusive, by the way. You can't have one without the other. But we're just going to kind of break them down because they have different meanings for us. So, so this morning, I want to look at that word Messiah. And then next week, after we've dedicated Cavern, we're going to look at what it means to be a son of God. So we're going to unpack that. Now, you might have heard the word Messiah crop up plenty of times in, 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 in whatever uh, version of the Bible you read, but it's interesting because the word Messiah, the actual word Messiah only occurs in the Greek New Testament twice. Because it's a word they borrowed from Aramaic, and, and the only two times we see it in the New Testament is those two times in John's Gospel. They're the only times it's used, and, and so what John has to do, he actually has to translate it so we understand what it, what it means. So when, when John, one of, one of Jesus' first, uh, sorry, when uh, one of Je Andrew, one of Jesus' first followers, he, he, he goes off to find his brother Simon. He says, hey, we found the Messiah. And John goes, which means Christ. Because he needs to explain it. A few chapters later, Jesus is sat at a well with a Samaritan woman. They're talking about worship. And she says, I know the Messiah is coming. And then she clarifies it, the one who's called Christ. 
So in your New Testament, every time you see the word Messiah, apart from those two examples, every time you see the word Messiah, the original Greek says Christ. And it's just been changed. Because the word Messiah is a Hebrew name. It means the same thing, by the way. It means the anointed one, but uh, specifically means the, the promised anointed one. And, and you see through Israel's history, God raised up people to, 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 to rule for specific times, specific purposes, to kind of lead the people, to rescue them, to, to bring them out of the mess they found themselves in. So, so Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, David. But, but after a while, that person, we're doing judges in our Bible studies at the moment, it's kind of getting to that point where we're going, here we go again. Because that person would die, and suddenly they're back to square one again. There was always this cycle that was going on where God would say, right, I'm going to send you to bring the people out of the mess they're in. And then that person does it, he dies, they just go straight back. But you know, there's always been a plan that there would be one person. There would always be a plan to send a savior. There'd always be a plan to send one rescuer, one Messiah. And, and rather than people having to make continual sacrifices for sins, there would be one sacrifice for all time. And in the Bible, we get these prophecies of a coming king, uh, this coming Messiah. And, and if you've got time, you'll see there are 300 prophecies about the Messiah. And these aren't just general prophecies. You know, someone didn't write, ooh, the Messiah, he'll have brown hair. The Messiah, he'll have a beard. These are really specific, and some of them are made 400 years before Jesus was born. And you might have think, well, Jesus could have known some of those prophecies, and he could have just made them happen. He could have. But there's prophecies about where Jesus would be born. Jesus couldn't control that. There's prophecies about where Jesus would grow up. He couldn't control that. There's prophecies about how Jesus would die. When you're nailed to a cross, you can't control how many, if they pierce your side or not. That Jesus couldn't control how many times they whipped him. And in fact, Psalm 22, if you read Psalm 22, it prophesies the crucifixion of Jesus before they were crucifixions. Crucifixion hasn't been invented yet. And here's David writing Psalm 22, and he sees it in his mind. There's a guy called Peter Stoner, uh, died a couple of years ago. He's a professor of, of maths um, out in America. And he, he looked at all the prophecies in the Bible. And he tried to work out, okay, what's the probability of, of, of one person making all these prophecies, so fulfill, what, one person fulfilling all these prophecies? And they did this study, and they said this, that one person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in ten to the power of 17. I'm not good at maths, but I know that's a big number. If it had one more zero, apparently it would be a quintillion. That's one man fulfilling eight prophecies, is, is one in a quintillion. So, so just to explain that, just so you can understand this, if you've got a 10 pence coin, or let's say you've got 10 10 p coins, and you, you put a mark on one, you chuck them all in a bag, and you say to someone, find that 10 p coin, they've got a one in 10 chance, yeah? So to do this, you would need enough 10p coins to cover the size of Texas. You would mark one of them and ask someone to put their hand in and find it. That's the kind of probability we're talking about of one person fulfilling eight prophecies. If you do this for 16 prophecies, it's one in 10 to the power of 45. 
you do it to 48 prophecies, it's 1 in 10 to the power of 157. Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies. They haven't got a number for that. They gave up. They actually stopped. They said, this is, this is ridiculous because it could only be because Jesus was the Messiah. The chances of him fulfilling every single prophecy about himself were just too massive unless he was God. So why did God do it? Why did God send a Messiah? Really simply, we needed one. Right from the actions of Adam and Eve, there's been a, a separation between man and God. And because God is holy, our sin separates us from him. And so in the Old Testament, the Jews had a system of sacrifice. Because as much as they tried, they couldn't live sinless lives. They just couldn't do it. And, and that, do you know, like us, we can try and we can try, but there'll always be a thought, there'll always be a word, there'll always be an action that just separates us from God. And so in the Old Testament, the Jews had this system of sacrifice and, and separation. They couldn't get close to God. They couldn't access God. They had to have priests who would do the sacrifice on their behalf. And they would offer these sacrifices because the Bible says something's going to die for your sin. The problem is these sacrifices were only going to cover them until they sinned the next time. So let's keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And, and so we have this tension in the Bible that be, because of God's holiness, he can't bear to look at us. But because of his love, he can't bear to look away. And so to solve it, God said, Jesus. But God loved us so much that rather than be separated from, from us, he sent his son to die in our place. To pay for our sins. And, and any other priest or any other sacrifice, it couldn't do it. I love what the writer of Hebrews says. He says that Jesus is the kind of high priest we need. He's holy and blameless, unstained by sin. Unlike these other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once and for all when he offered himself. Peter, who, who made that confession of faith to Jesus, who said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God, he wrote a letter to some Christians in, in Asia, and, and he paraphrases an older Jewish text in Isaiah, and he says this, that Jesus personally carried our sins to the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. There's a guy called Titus. Peter wrote to a guy called Titus. So Paul wrote to a guy called Titus. He said, once we were foolish in disobedience, we were misled. We became slaves to lusts and pleasures. We were full of envy and evil. We hated each All this is true today, mind. There's nothing new here. But I love this line. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we'd done. Nothing to do with us. We couldn't do anything to save ourselves, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth, new life. He poured out the Spirit on us. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight. He gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. We were in a mess. And Jesus came and saved us. And it wasn't because we earned it. It wasn't because we did anything to deserve it, just because he loved us. And I love this, 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 this bit because Paul says, and sometimes we get this the wrong way around, and, and it's one of these barriers you say, oh, you, you say to your friends or your neighbors or your family, come to church, and they say, oh, no, I can't, I'm too, I'm, I'm too dirty. I'm too messed up. I, I, I can't do it. But look at this. He says, while we were still sinners, 
God demonstrates his love. He didn't just, didn't just tell you he loved you, he showed you. Sent Jesus to die on a cross for everything we did, but it wasn't after we asked for forgiveness. It wasn't after we repented. It wasn't after we sorted our life out. It was while we were still sinners. We don't have to be good to be saved. You don't have to be clean. You don't have to be holy to be saved. And, and I've used this line so many times that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to bring dead people to life. So how did he do it? Well, there's lots of prophecies about the, about the Messiah, how, he would, uh, how the Messiah would live, how he would die. And, and we, we actually, as we get closer to Easter next year, we're going to look at some of these prophecies in a little bit more detail. I just encourage you to read Psalm 22, read Isaiah 53, uh, read them alongside the crucifixion narrative. You just see how these prophecies come true. But, but by the time Jesus came to the earth, what had happened is the Jews had formed this idea in, the, in, the, in their heads of what the Messiah should be like. And some of it wasn't in the Bible, by the way, but, but they'd imagined this, this Messiah would be the one who would set them free forever from kind of oppression. He'd lead us into battle against the Romans. He'd kick the Romans out of Israel, and, and then he'd rule over us. And they took this text from Genesis, where it talks about the tribe of Judah. And it says the monarchy will always descend from the tribe of Judah, and it says he's a lion. That a scepter will not depart from him. There'll always be a king from this tribe until the coming of the one who is the Messiah, and, and they had this image that this Messiah was going to be a warrior king. And when you go back to the conversation Jesus has with Peter, G Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And in Peter's head, he's going, you're our warrior king. You're going to set us free. You're going to go in and fight against the Romans. And it's interesting because Peter says, from then on, he began to tell his disciples plainly. So he's not talking in parables. He's telling them straight. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed at the hands of other people. But on the third day, I'm going to raise, rise from the dead. And I, I love Peter's reaction, or I, I don't in some senses, because he kind of grabs Jesus by the arm and says, Jesus, can I have a word? And he pulls him aside and says, and I love it, he says, Peter reprimanded Jesus. Peter told Jesus off. And the Greek there is epitomeo, and it means to warn. And Peter's trying to warn Jesus, and Peter's going, Jesus, you can't say that. This won't happen to you because you're our warrior king. And Jesus gives this lovely reply. Get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap. Now, he wasn't calling Peter Satan, by the way. Don't, don't, don't get lost in that. But, he, but he's saying, listen, Peter, you're thinking how the devil wants you to think. And if you keep thinking like that, you're going to try and stop me from doing what I came to do. And here's the key line. He says, you're seeing things from a human point of view and not from God's. Because in Peter's human mind, his understanding of the Messiah was this warrior. I've proclaimed Jesus to be this, this lion, this warrior king who's going to come and, and, and blow the Romans away. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And, and for Peter, he's going, that's not right. Because that's not my idea of the Messiah. Peter expected the Messiah to be a lion. But God sent a lamb. Now, Jesus is a lion, by the way, but it, that's not until he comes again. And that's a study for another time. Actually, it's only once in the entire New Testament that Jesus is referred to as a lion. But more than 30 times he's referred to as a lamb. And in some of the prophecies about Jesus' death, he's referred to 
as a lamb. This Messiah will be a lamb. If you go back way to the time of Moses, you'll know the story of the Israelites. Uh, we're, we're about to leave Egypt, and God says, you need to take a lamb, you need to, you need to slaughter this lamb, you need to smear the blood on your door frames, and that blood will cover your house. And we get the idea of Passover, that, that angel of death. If you've ever seen that old, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who's in it, that really old Ten Commandments film where they're just about to kind of, and, uh, yeah, I can't remember the name of the film. Um, I'm sure it's called Ten Commandments, and it's really old. But watch it. Um, and this idea of Passover, the angel of death would pass over. So they have a festival called Passover. And, G- and God says, you know, this festival, you're going to tell your children every year what I did for you. Tell the children every year your, the story of your rescue from Israel. And, and even to this day, Jews will, 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 will have, actually, they don't have a lamb anymore. But, but, but the, 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 the story is you know, we sacrifice a lamb because it was remembering this, this, this time of Passover. Jesus died at Passover. It was the day when they were, they were celebrating their rescue from Egypt, the day they were sacrificing a lamb. That very, very day, Jesus was crucified. Another name for Jesus is the Lamb of God. John the Baptist said this about Jesus. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So for this Passover feast, actually, when you, when you look at the detail of it, there were ways they had to kill the lamb. And, and it's all symbolic for the time, but actually it's prophetic because everything points to Jesus. It says about the lamb, it's got to be a sheep or a goat with no defects. This lamb can't have anything wrong with it. It's got to be perfect. The blood of this lamb has to be clean because the, the blood um, represented the ability for you to be clean from your sin. So that the blood was shed instead of ours to pay for our sins. So, so if the blood you're applying isn't perfect, it won't be good enough. It's like, you know, if you're cleaning your car or washing your kitchen counter, you don't take out a dirty sponge or a dirty cloth. You use a clean one. A dirty cloth wouldn't be acceptable. It wouldn't be qualified to clean something that's unclean. So, so look, the Bible says in 1 Peter, it says, God paid a ransom to save you. The ransom wasn't gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ who was the sinless, spotless lamb of God. Jesus was perfect in every way. He was without sin, the Bible says. It makes him actually the only one who could take on our sin. Second thing about this, about this lamb is it had to be slaughtered at a certain time. If you look at the timings on it, God said to the Israelites, take special care of this animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month, so that's Passover day. The whole assembly of the community of Israel slaughter their lamb at twilight. Twilight in Jewish terms, 9 a.m. In Jewish tradition, there were daily sacrifices. They would sacrifice at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. At Passover, the lamb they slaughtered was killed. At, at, at three. Jesus went to the cross at 9 a.m says it was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. He hung there for six hours. Do you know what time he died? 3 p.m. Luke's gospel tells us darkness fell across the land until 3 o'clock. The curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, I think Jesus knew. I think Jesus knew, right, it's 3 o'clock. Time to fulfill this. So at the same time they're killing the Passover lambs, Jesus is, is dying. 
Passover lamb was for their sins for that one time. Jesus gives up his life for our sins forever. I don't know, about, know, know this, but when they were preparing the lamb for eating, they weren't allowed to break any of the lamb's bones. It was forbidden to break any of the lamb's bones. God says, the, the lamb must be eaten in one house. Don't carry the meat outside. Don't break any of his bones. Do you know what happened after Jesus' death? They knew it was getting to the end of the day. They knew that the Sabbath was coming up. They knew they had to get this whole, the Romans knew they had to get this whole thing wrapped up before the sun went down. So they took the two guys who were being crucified with Jesus and they broke their legs. And it sped up the process. When they got to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. John says this happened to fulfill the scriptures that say not one of his bones will be broken. There are three scriptures that explicitly state none of Jesus' bones will be broken. So here we've got the Lamb of God, perfect, sinless, killed at exactly the right time, and none of his bones are broken. I'm going to invite the band back up because there's one last thing I just want to show you from this. The Lamb had to be spotless, the Lamb had to be, be whole. But the lamb had to be shared. The instructions to the Israelites to say this, if, you, if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. So you might think, well, how did they do that? We're not allowed to break its bones and you can't take it to another house. Do you know how you do it? You invite someone else to yours. You invite people into your house to share the lamb. Can I tell you the lamb is meant to be shared? Can I tell you this household is too small for all the lamb we've got? It's meant to be shared. There is more than enough lamb to go around and there's a calling on us to share the lamb. Share the lamb. Share the lamb. Share the lamb. And we will continue to share the lamb for as long as there are people who haven't had lamb yet. Church was never intended to be this exclusive restaurant where we all eat lamb and never tell anyone about it. You know, it's, have you ever seen Fight Club? You know, the first rule of church is you don't talk about church. Second rule of church is you don't talk about church. We want to share the lamb with everyone, especially the people who've never had some lamb. There's enough Jesus for everyone. And as long as there are people in this town who've never had lamb, we'll keep sharing it by whatever means we can. Because Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to ask you to do two things this week, if I can. As we begin to draw close to our centenary celebrations, I want to, I want to ask you to pray for them. That in everything we do, we, we get and we use opportunities to tell people about the Lamb. That our centenary celebration isn't about us. It's about sharing the Lamb. That in every meeting, every event, every gathering, we are sharing the Lamb of God with everyone around us. Wouldn't this be the best celebration? Forget the hundred years. But if your family member that you've been praying for, if your friend that you've been praying for, if your work colleague that you've been praying for, if they come to Jesus, that's a far better celebration than this. So I want to encourage you to pray for it.
Pray for those family members. Pray for everything we do, and it's an opportunity to share the land. The second thing I want to invite you to do is actually invite them. There's a study, was, I was read, read a study the other day, and they said that 94% of people come to church because someone invited them. Can I suggest you're here today because once in your life someone invited you to church? It's true for me. I was six years old, a boy called Adam invited me to church. I am here today because he invited me. So I want to encourage you to pray for those people. Who am I going to invite? Who am I going to put this card? Who am I going to put this card in their hand? I'd love you to pray over the card before you give it. Would you bow your heads? It would just be wrong of me to end this message without offering the opportunity to come to the Lamb. Now, you might be here this morning, you might have heard of Jesus, but you don't know him. Can I tell you, he loves you. He loved you enough to die for you. He loved you enough to be that lamb that was sacrificed so you could have life. He would be whipped so that you could be healed emotionally, physically, spiritually. He would bleed his sinless blood so that you could be forgiven and made clean. I want to encourage you, it might be for the first time, it might be for the 50th time, that maybe, maybe you've been a Christian a while and you've just kind of wandered off and, and this is the question for you is, who is Jesus to you? And I would encourage you to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. When you pray this prayer with me, Jesus, I need you. I admit that I'm far from you. Please forgive me. Save me. Today I make you Lord of my life. I surrender my life to you. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you rose from the dead. And today I put my faith in you. Thank you for being my lamb. Amen.